The information in this podcast is not intended to be used as the primary basis of investment decisions. Any forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance, and actual results may differ or other factors may change. Welcome to Making Sense, the podcast for anyone interested in diving into the investing and startup space. I'm your host, Emma Hodgins, and I'm an intern at Red Thread Ventures, an investment and advisory firm based in Vancouver, BC. From interviews to advice, I will take you on my journey as I learn more about the finance industry and startup space. With that being said, let's get right into today's episode. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Making Sense. Today, I'm incredibly excited to be joined by Dr. Mads Dugard, the President and Chief Scientific Officer at Rakavina Therapeutics. Mads is a molecular biologist who earned his PhD degree from the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Copenhagen for his studies on heat shock proteins in relation to cancer cell survival mechanisms. He is also the head of Molecular Pathology and Cell Imaging Unit, Senior Research Scientist at the Vancouver Prostate Center, and Associate Professor at the Department of Urologic Sciences, University of British Columbia. Without any further ado, let's get right into today's episode. Mads, thank you so much for joining me today. Do you think you could tell me a little bit more about yourself? Yes, I'll be happy to, Emma. So I grew up in Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, went to school there, uh, did also university, and uh, my PhD uh, at the University of Copenhagen. And then um, when I was done with my PhD, I, uh, I got a connection to a professor at uh, the University of British Columbia and, and the BC Cancer Agency. And then I decided to take two years in British Columbia to train in molecular pathology. So uh, a, little, a little outside my field that I was uh, educated in. And but, sorry, what field were you in before? Um, that was um, a more basic research molecular biology uh, in cancer. Um, so with the molecular pathology angle on top of it, it uh, kind of uh, took a direction to be a little bit more translational, my research. And uh, that's the pa- path that, uh, that, I, um, that I developed uh, from there and, and on. Mm-hmm. You said that was two years at UBC. Are you still there now? Yes, yes. So um, the, the original plan was to, to stay there with my family for, for a couple of years and then go back to, uh, to Denmark. But um, when I was uh, about to leave, then, uh, then I got a, an offer uh, to come on as faculty at UBC and a senior scientist at the Vancouver Prostate Cancer. So uh, at that point, as an independent uh, researcher and, uh, and scientist. So I decided to give it a go and uh, I'm still there. <laughs> How long has it been now? Well, it has been, uh, I've been in, in, uh, in Vancouver for close to 11 years now. And so what were you um, hired to start researching, I guess, at UBC? 
Um, yeah, so um, uh, I'm affiliated with the Department of uh, Urologic Sciences. Um, so the majority of my research, at, uh, at least in the beginning, was focused on the urologic cancers uh, like prostate cancer, like bladder cancer, uh, especially. Mm -hmm. But um, I quite quickly got uh, involved in other research programs as well. And uh, today I also have a quite big program running in, in childhood cancer, uh, especially in, in the type of, of cancer called sarcoma. Do you find that there's a lot of overlap between the different types of cancer then that you've been researching or is it like a new, a new deal every time? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Um, okay. I mean, uh, cancer behave quite similar. So um, it's all about, uh, you know, sick cells that gets out of control and, and start dividing uh, out of control. And then at some point they will start to move away from their original location and, uh, and invade other tissue. Um, and that's kind of the path that, that all cancer is following. Um, but if you look at the molecular level of the cancers uh, and ask the question, how are they actually doing this? Then there are many different routes to, to achieving that uh, phenotype that we see in cancer. So that makes it complicated also. Mm -hmm. And I know earlier I was saying that you're also involved with Racavina Therapeutics, who is working um, on this on these DNA damage response inhibitors. I was wondering if you could tell me more about how you got involved with that opportunity. Yes, I got involved uh, from the very beginning with Racavina when it was still an idea. Conversations with uh, Jeff Bacha, uh, our CEO, um, has been going on for a couple of years uh, on, on, on a new, new project in, in DNA damage. And um, I knew Jeff from a previous um, very nice collaboration we had when he was in Delmar Pharmaceuticals. Um, so it has been a long relationship that kind of developed into a new idea uh, with Racovina Therapeutics and, um, and uh, the DNA damage space, which we think is, um, is uh, very interesting and very promising in cancer. You think you can tell me a little bit more about that space and why you think yes. it's interesting? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, um, so cancer, all cancers, um, they have what we call replication stress. So it means that every time a cell divides and become two cells, then it will have to replicate its entire genome. Um, so all the DNA will have to be copied and put into two new daughter cells. Um, and that replication of DNA, um, when it happens um, at a high level, then there is errors happening all the time. And that's what also makes these cancers accumulate mutations uh, over time. Um, and the cancers will have to repair those damages to the DNA uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, and, and they have uh, different repair pathways that they uh, employ to uh, take care of that repair. 
And one of the repair pathways is um, the pathway uh, regulated by a protein called PARP. Um, and PARP has therefore been a very attractive target by the industry uh, for cancer therapeutics for, for quite a few years now. And they are, they are actually four uh, already approved PARP uh, inhibitor compounds on the market. Um, but they have been extremely successful um, in a certain subtype of cancer. And um, what we think is that we have an idea on how we can broaden that uh, use of PARP inhibitors out uh, to, uh, to, to more cancers. Could you um, maybe describe a little bit more um, about these PARP inhibitors then? So just kind of in general. Yeah. PARP, PARP inhibitors, so it's, it's an enzyme that makes a small modification to other proteins. Okay. Um, or, and it's and, the proteins and, then in the cells that are causing this mutations in the replication sense? Um, yeah, so what, what it does is that it's required for repair of um, single-strand DNA lesions. Okay. Um, and um, so, so every time you get um, a, a single-strand lesion in your DNA, then part will come in and, and, uh, and help repair that specific lesion uh, before the cell goes into replication. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really its role. So it means that if you inhibit PARP, then you will uh, increase the number of these small DNA lesions. Mm -hmm. And uh, by themselves, they are not actually that um, uh, serious for the cells. Um, they, can, they can survive um, with uh, these small lesions um, usually. But when they progress into the replication stage, then uh, these small lesions becomes very serious and uh, develops what is called uh, full double-strand breaks in the DNA. Um, and that has to be repaired right away. Otherwise, this cell will, uh, will simply go into uh, to apoptosis or, or programmed cell death, as it's also called. Very interesting. Um, and I know you're saying there's some other companies who've been working on this as well, um, and, or using looking at treatments with PARP inhibitors. What, what's making Rakavina's research approach different? Yeah, uh, that's that's a good question. Um, so uh, the the we the Rakovina has three series of of pop inhibitors uh, in the pipeline, and um, they have been carefully designed to um, uh, to address some of the shortcomings of of the currently approved pop inhibitors. Um, and one of the shortcomings, for example, is that uh, pop inhibitors. Um, are not very good at crossing from the blood circulation into the central nerve system or uh, the brain. And many of the cancers, they uh, tend to spread and metastasize into the brain tissue. And as soon as they do that, then the current PARP inhibitors have a very difficult time uh, getting in and actually exercising an effect in that uh, in that tissue, so that's one thing that that uh, Rakovina is uh, is addressing the the access of these molecules to the brain. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the other series of compounds Ragorina is developing is actually dual uh, activity uh, compounds. So it means that it's one single compound that can do two things at the same time. And one of the things it can do is to be a really good PARP inhibitor, obviously. Um, but the other thing it can do is to either inhibit another enzyme that is required for DNA repair during replication, or it can induce additional DNA damage that will overload the system in the context of PARP inhibition. So in that way, we create um, a stressful situation for the cells that proliferate, which means the, the cancer cells, and, uh, and force them into, uh, into apoptosis, uh, programmed cell death. So in that case, it would be beneficial, I guess, to cause all this extra stress. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so in that way, we, we harness the fact that, that the tumor cells are under constant replication stress. Take advantage of that uh, Achilles heel, you can call it. Um, and then these compounds are then able to just push them over the cliff. Are these treatments used on their own or are they used um, in addition to like traditional chemotherapy? Is it more to like to treat the cancer in the first place or maintain um, a treatment after per se? Um, they are actually used as both uh, okay. right now. Um, but they started by being a uh, standalone monotherapy uh, deployed in specific subgroups of cancers, mainly breast cancer, prostate cancer, and ovarian cancer, where you have a, a population of cells or a subgroup of, uh, of uh, tumor types in there where uh, you have defects in uh, the DNA repair system mainly caused by mutations in two core elements or core genes called BRCA1 and BRCA2. So the combination between having uh, defects in your ability to repair double-strand breaks in DNA and having a PARP inhibition uh, caused by a molecule that creates, uh, that creates this um, scenario called uh, synthetic lethality um, that is really uh, two different events that um, may not be that serious by the by themselves but when they are combined and put in the in the same context then then it becomes lethal so that's that's the idea behind the pop inhibitors as they were developed very interesting and you said you had um three different series that you're working on right now with racavina for these PARP inhibitors. Um, what are the differences uh, in between the three series? You think you can go into that a little bit more? Yes. Um, the KT2000 series is the series that um, has been focused on enhancing uh, blood-brain penetrance. Um, so it's basically just a, um, a very well-functioning PARP inhibitor with a chemistry that allows it to uh, pass through the blood-brain barrier. Um, the KT3000 series um, is a series that can inhibit both PARP, um, but at the same time also inhibit an enzyme called H-stack or histone deacetylase. 
Um, and histone deacetylases uh, are enzymes that are very important for cells um, during replication, but also uh, in the context of repairing double strand breaks. So you can say that by inhibiting uh, HDAX uh, together with PARP, you, you create a different type of uh, synthetic lethality um, than if you combine PARP inhibition with, for example, mutations in uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2. So uh, the idea is kind of the same, but, uh, but uh, this is a new clever way to uh, create that synthetic lethality scenario that uh, potentially can bring the PARP inhibitor or the use of the PARP inhibitors outside uh, the tumor types where you find um, BRCA mutations. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you said earlier, actually, that there are some other companies working with these PARP inhibitors, um, but I feel like most of these companies may be only focusing on one series at a time in their preclinical pre research. Um, how are you guys at Rakavina able to work it on all three of these different series simultaneously? <laughs> yeah, um, it's because we think all three series are, are, are extremely exciting and uh, holds great, great promise. Um, but uh, for sure, um, the development of the three series does not occur, uh, you know, in the exact same speed um, because they're different uh, concerns and different uh, assays to be uh, and different requirements uh, in the different series that, uh, that, that, you know, bring them out of sync. Um, so it will effectively be that, that one series will move uh, fa forward faster than the other series, but it is our intention to bring all three series forward uh, because we think they can cover uh, and need in the PARP inhibitor space, um, all of them, that uh, is non-complementary. And what stage right now um, in the development of these are you at? Um, all, all three uh, series are in the preclinical stage uh, right now. And um, we are, that means that we are uh, conducting all the uh, development QC research um, for the inhibitors in animals and also in vitro in the laboratory to make sure that that the molecules perform exactly as we want them to perform and um, and that it's repeated as, uh, it can be repeated um, uh, and and all these things. Uh, so, so the next step after this will be um, to file for the phase one clinical trial. Um, and I think we will be ready for that in, um, in the first half of uh, 2023. Oh, that's quite soon. Very exciting. Um, so are all of this research happening right now? It's happening at UBC, correct? That is correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah. Go ahead. So I was just wondering, like, how are you using uh, that partnership uh, to your advantage at Rakavina then? Yeah, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the uh, partnership with UPC is, um, is something that we established um, because it really um, is it's a, it's a great way to get access to, um, to uh, additional technology. Um, if you imagine, um, 
the cost, for example, of setting up a unique location and a completely new laboratory um, for Rakovina that will be connected with, with huge costs and, uh, and burns. Um, in this situation here, we can tap into a fully operational uh, cancer research uh, infrastructure at UBC um, in my academic laboratory there. Um, under appropriate agreements that, um, that uh, secure that the collaboration can, can function under um, uh, IP uh, protection and all these issues. So, so that, that seems to be a very, very good way to, uh, to do it. Definitely. Um, so are you in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis as the chief scientific officer? Or what, what does your um, day <laughs> in the life, I guess, look like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish I had more time to go into the lab and actually uh, do the research myself. Um, but the reality is that, uh, that I'm leading a team of researchers uh, that are actually doing the research in the lab. And I'm more the um, the supervisor that uh, gives good advice to uh, to how to solve problems as they arise and uh, and also analyze the data and uh, and uh, develop the strategies moving forward that's uh, that's more my role i see um so you said right now you're um testing on animals and then testing in vitro these therapies um so is that pretty much like using them as a test. So this is um, the step before testing on people or is there some more in between? Do you think you could elaborate there? Um, no, that will uh, be the steps needed for, uh, for a filing for phase one. Um, um, it's, it's a little bit hard to predict whether um, a single species test will be enough. Sometimes the regulatory uh, units they they would like to see a new compound in two different animal species before they allow it to be tested in humans um, and whether that will become a requirement it will also depend on which indication <coughs> in cancer that we will go into first um, because some of these uh, very serious cancer types they have um, uh, a speci uh, special designation in the regulatory system that can uh, uh, enable fast track. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you guys are tapping into that fast track? That That's uh, for sure something we are looking into. Um, mm -hmm. We are looking at several of these tumor indications that would, uh, um, that would be uh, considered uh, fast track uh, indications. Um, so, um, so that's that's definitely on our radar. We have uh, we have uh, patents uh, around all our compounds, and it's a composition of matter patents. So it means that it's uh, it's the actual chemistry in the compounds that uh, we have been able to patent, and not just the the use of a, of a compound in in a specific context. So, very strong patents. So after you get to the phase one. Uh, clinical trials. I was wondering, uh, what what does this mean on a timeline for an investor? When can they uh, start to see maybe some excitement and get excited about Rakabina? Hmm. Yeah, um, uh, I think that um, the next value inflection point uh, for Rakovina Therapeutics will be either 
the phase one clinical trial, or it will be a partnership that uh, could occur, which we would of course also be interested in looking at. Um, but I see those two, um, uh, those two catalysts as, as the, the main, uh, the main value inflection point. Um, before that, we will of course uh, be fully transparent um, and uh, present our progress mainly at uh, recognized international cancer conferences where our data can get peer reviewed by, by our peers. And uh, in that way, I, I think in that way, uh, you are able to um, uh, constantly update me constantly update uh, investors uh, on, on the go um, and I think that's the best way to do it so, so there's a lot of potential here then um, I, I was reading before about this other company um, another oncology focused company uh, Tesaro I don't know if you've heard about them yeah but they I, were acquired by um, GlaxoSmithKline uh, for, I think it was $5.1 billion. Uh, so that's obviously very, very exciting. Um, is that something that you could see kind of Rakavina following suit in? Um, uh, definitely. Um, that is, is absolutely an option because um, the, the currently approved compounds are, uh, are currently uh, uh, distributed and owned by uh, some of the very big pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, and um, uh, I'm sure that, that they would have an interest also in, uh, in getting approved compounds into their pipeline. Um, so for sure, I see a, a buyout as, as one of the absolute opportunities here. Mm -hmm. This company here, though, um, it was working on PARP inhibitors as well, but they only had one series in development. Uh, so does that mean that uh, Rakavina <laughs> could, they could have even more potential then? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I guess it means that. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, so that, that would be very exciting. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then also just changing gears here a little bit. What, what does your research mean for um, cancer patients right now? Yeah, I, I think the, our research um, means uh, or what we are, we are trying to do here is to make sure that we can use the, the, the PARP inhibition, the, the concept of PARP inhibition in a, in a broader range of, of, of cancers than, than, than it's currently deployed in and, and working on. Um, so, uh, and that's our goal. Um, so in, in that context, what it means is that, that many more patients could potentially uh, get access to, to PARP inhibition in a meaningful way uh, that will help, help the disease. And you said um, 2023, early 2023 is when um, phase one preclinical trials um, may begin. You think you could expand on the timeline? Like when could this potentially be in the market or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know that's well, that, long, long in the future, <laughs> but. <laughs> that, that's a, a long time ahead, but yes. um, um, usually the, the sequences that 
you do the phase one clinical trial, which is basically a safety trial where you um, uh, find out how high you can dose in humans. And that um, information will then inform the phase two trial dose where you are looking at uh, efficacy uh, in specific uh, patient groups. And usually that's followed by a phase three study, which is an even larger study. Um, and um, the phase three study will uh, in reality probably require uh, a partner coming in at that point. So when, when will it get to market? Um, as soon as possible, but <laughs> but it's very difficult to predict how how fast you move through uh, through these different uh, trials. And again, if we get um, fast track approval, um, then you can skip some of these steps. Um, and I have seen compounds, other compounds with fast track uh, being uh, on the market. Uh, available to patients within a, a five-year time frame. So that's what we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. When, um, it, w- in what stage of this process would you know whether you're getting uh, possible to get fast track approval or not? That will be after phase one, okay. um, when uh, we and the regulatories um, are confident that the compound is safe. Uh, to use in humans, um, then you will get into discussions on on fast track opportunities. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I know you said you were presenting at some oncology conferences. There, is there any coming up um, that we should be excited about? Or? Um, yeah, I think the uh, next one is the uh, CCRA conference. Um, so uh, that is the Canadian Cancer conference uh, that is quite similar to the to the big American ACR, just in a smaller scale. Um, and uh, there we will present data mainly on our KT3000 series. Um, that, um, and that series is the um, dual PARP inhibitor, uh, HDAC inhibitor compound. Um, so that we are very excited about that. The conferences are, are quite, um, uh, you know, odd right now because uh, of the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, usually, we you go to the conference in person and and you give a presentation and and you have the opportunity to interact with everyone on site and that usually gives a very good. Uh, discussion and and also uh, creates new uh, interesting uh, uh, connections and and collaborations but nowadays it's all online um so uh, and and this conference will also be online so it's it's going to be a an electronic poster um that you can get access to with if you are a conference delegate mm-hmm. Does, does online facilitate um, any like additional people joining by any chance? Because I feel like there is some beauties of, yeah. of that, right? You could get more eyes yeah. on your work. Um, yes, that's the good thing about it. Um, mm-hmm. And as the world goes back to normal, uh, hopefully, I think that element will stay in the conferences. I think you will, you will keep that opportunity to participate in conferences uh, online. 
Uh, and and I, I I really think that's that's a good good thing about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is interesting. Like you're on the other side of the world right now with me. Yeah. We would never be able to have this conversation um, without these online features. Um, no. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, but but yes, did you go to any of these in person conferences and many of these in person conferences before um, everything got shut down? Then or? oh yes, I had. Okay. Um, I probably had like uh, 60 travel days a year. Oh, wow. Just for conferences. Mm-hmm. All yeah. over the world then? or All over the world, yeah. Um, and, you know, then we have had one and a half years where everything was online. So it has been quite strange, actually, to, to make that transition. Um, and uh, I do hope that, that some of it will come back again, but... Um, I, I welcome the integration with the with the online uh, uh, platforms as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure, like as you said, the in-person conversations helps form those connections in a more meaningful way. Do you think there? I, I know some restrictions are starting to lift soon. Do you think the in-person conferences will be coming back anytime uh, in the future? Well, I can tell you that the first in-person conference. I have been uh, invited to is in June 2022. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm counting on it, um, but I, I, I think it's still going to be uh, a, a little bit of time before we see it. Definitely. Well, I'm looking forward to that for you. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> very exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's exciting to share your research at those as well. Is that the main way that you're sharing um, the your news with Rakovina right now through these conferences? Um, it will be uh, the platform where um, we share the uh, smaller uh, updates on progress in the science and in our compounds. But um, we will also uh, publish our work in uh, peer-reviewed scientific journals um as uh, as 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 the different series they progress uh so there will be that too and then we will of course also give uh, more simplified updates um, um on our homepage when uh, when we publish and when we present at conferences um, that is a bit more understandable for uh, for the lay person mm-hmm. so so if there's people who who have never invested in the biotech industry before, um, what do you think would be the easiest way for them to catch up to speed with Rakovina then? Well, I think it, uh, for Rakovina, it will be to uh, follow, follow us on, uh, on, on the internet. Uh, we, we post um, uh, our progress and uh, every time we, we get a new patent, uh, approved. We also publish that on on our internet and in the social media platforms. Um, so I think that's probably the the easiest way to keep track of uh, Rakovina activities. Mm-hmm. And then for just biotech in general, is there any resources you could recommend for um, these uh, people to kind of situate themselves in this biotech oncology space? Yeah. I, uh, so most biotechs are. Um, uh, uh, organized um, in in different associations um, in British Columbia, for example, we have 
Life Science BC that um, uh, is a very good way to get familiar with uh, all the smaller startups, but also the more established uh, bio, biotech companies that, uh, that we have in British Columbia. And that is also linked into a national um, uh, platform um, so, so it can be broadened out uh, as, as people wish. Mm -hmm. I know you guys are currently trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. I was wondering if this helped you um, get some more funding from maybe people who are less, less familiar in the biotech industry. Um, yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I, I really hope so, um, mm -hmm. that, 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 that more people uh, will get their uh, attention to biotech because um, it is really a, a, a sector that is growing rapidly um, and there are um, lots of uh, upside in, in biotech. There's also some risk, um, but it is for sure a sector that, um, that, that holds promise, um, not only in cancer, but, in, uh, but also in other uh, disease indications. Mm -hmm. I think COVID-19 especially kind of brought a lot of attention to the biotech industry as a whole. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, there's any other, you said it's growing, growing rapidly. Do you think there's any other reasons why or just consumer trends? Or? Um, I think there's, um, there's always a need for developing new medicine. Um, we have a, a world population that, that gets older and older. Um, it means that there would be more and more disease um, that would have to be addressed. Um, and, and I think that that's really what drives the biotech uh, industry also. I have to agree. The biotech industry is such an exciting up and coming space and one that most investors tend to shy away from. So I really hope that this podcast helps to put into perspective how promising these opportunities could be and show investors that the space is really not as intimidating as it may seem. Yes, yes. And with that, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today, Mads. I really appreciated all your time and enjoyed learning about Racavina Therapeutics and all the progress you guys have been making in the field of cancer research. If you're listening and interested in learning more about Racavina, make sure to check out their website, at racavinatherapeutics.com and follow their LinkedIn and Twitter accounts. To never miss an episode of Making Sense, check out Red Thread Ventures on LinkedIn, hit the subscribe button, and follow us on whatever platform you stream your podcasts. Thanks again for tuning in today.